This podcast is sponsored by Rode Microphones, the choice of today's creative generation. This podcast was also sponsored by Small HD, real-time confidence for creatives. Hi, I'm Oakley Anderson-Moore, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. Among filmmakers, you often hear that you can't finance a short, you can't sell a short, so why the hell do you make a short? For five filmmakers on today's podcast, a short film became essential lifeblood for their filmmaking careers. You'll hear from Chloe Actis, a regular actress on The Walking Dead, Anders Hammer, who specializes in documenting war zones, Jesse Conweiler, a YouTube icon with millions of views, Erica Tremblay, a doc filmmaker moving into narrative, and Danny Lee, a bloke who wanted to shoot on a digital bolex. All of their films played in the insanely competitive shorts program at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Take a listen as to how they made their films, what it takes to make something good, and why you make a short in the first place. Hi, this is Oakley from No Film School, and we are listening to the No Film School podcast. I am sitting here um, recording from the Sundance 2020 Film Festival with a group of very talented filmmakers who all have short films at the festival this year. My name is Chloe Oktosh, and I'm the writer, director, editor of Lance in a Neck Brace. And it's about a character named Lance who listens to instructional cassette tapes on how to heal a broken heart. My name is Danny Lee, and I directed Junior Bangers. My name is Jesse Comweiler. Um, I'm the writer, director, and star of He's the One, and it's uh, about a Tinder date from hell. My name is Erica. I'm the director of Little Chief, which follows an indigenous teacher who's helping a young student who's having a bad day. My name is Anders Hammer. I directed uh, Do Not Split, which is a documentary about the protests in Hong Kong. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much. This panel is very exciting because everybody represents such different styles of filmmaking and, you know, documentary narrative, but even within there. And I have to say, like, I really think everyone's films here are really great. And like, I, I don't just say that to every short podcast that I've ever recorded, which is not that many, but you guys are really talented. So thank you so much for, you know, talking to us today. And I have so many questions. I want to ask you about your work and have you share with our listeners. But the first thing I want to ask you is about how you came up with the idea to make this film. For some of you, it's narrative. For some of you, it's following a, a, a documentary subject. But the thing with short films and what I just am so impressed by this group's films is that great short film is really good because it's short. It's not just like, here's a glimpse to be continued trailer for my movie. It can be. But everyone here, I feel like, really succeeded at making this truly unique story that was perfectly suited for the length that it was. So I'm just curious, how did the idea come to be able to make something that was just perfectly suited for something so short. When the protests broke out in Hong Kong last summer, I was very interested in what was happening. I was very fascinated and surprised by how a so-called leaderless movement, mainly consisting of very young people, were challenging one of the strongest, most powerful countries in the world, China. Uh, so I went there. Um, I worked on covering conflicts, made a lot of documentaries in different countries for 12, 13 years. Uh, but I didn't really know whether I would make a movie in Hong Kong. I was going there first just to see. And when I was there, I was started trying to find out whether I could get the access I thought I needed to actually make a movie. 
and then I started hanging in the streets and speaking to a lot of people, uh, followed many of the protesters. And at some point, I realized that I was starting to get the access I thought I needed. And my idea was to basically film the protests as close as possible. And that's what I ended up doing. <laughs> Little Chief is based off of real-life experiences that my mom um, had teaching on a small uh, teaching in a small rural school to mostly uh, indigenous kids from my reservation and so I had always just grown up with her teaching at the school and um, you know myself going to a school that's similar to the one that she taught at and it wasn't until I got older that I kind of really realized the unique challenges for both teachers and students inside of like an indigenous education system And so I wanted to tell the story of kind of the sacrifices that I witnessed my mom and other matriarchs make in our community to provide safety and education to our youth. And that those sacrifices that they make are really what is needed to ensure our future as a community and our future as Seneca Cayuga people. And so I just wanted to kind of have like a glimpse in one day of these two characters that are kind of like traversing um, things that are very unique to a small resident or a a small reservation school in Northeastern Oklahoma. So yeah, love letter to mom. (laughs) I was at the parking lot of Trader Joe's in Glendale And I was on the phone with my manager and I was crying and I was like every day and I was like thinking about some of the trauma in my past and I was just like, dude, like it's been like 10 years. How am I ever going to get over this? Like how is this ever going to go away? How can I forgive this someone that's done something horrible to me? And was just having this conversation with him about forgiveness and really what that means and what having compassion for yourself having gone through something and also someone that's, you know, done something horrible to you. How do you transcend that? And um, I wrote this feature script. I was actually here last year for the talent forum that Sundance did. And it was like a speed dating with pitching. And, you know, I, I met with like 50 different financiers. Everyone's laughing, crying. Oh, my God, this is the best movie we ever had. I'm like, oh, my God, bidding war. I go home. No one gave us money. I was just like, and I'll never get over it, dude. I will never get over when someone looks you in the eyes and they're like, I can't wait to work together. Like, this is going to be amazing. I like fucking believe them. And then you get home and you're like, wait, my movie's not happening. And it was around October that I was just like – dude, I have to just make this because I can't keep telling people what the tone is. I have to show them. And I I love what you said about shorts because I didn't want to make something that felt like a truncated – I didn't want to make a scene. I I rewrote um, a whole different three-act structure within a short so it could be self-contained and um, self-financed it. You know, everyone worked for like beer and hugs and whatever. Um, Yeah, and now we're here. Well, I was born in the UK, and I knew about this sport, banger racing. And so what I was surprised, a lot of people uh, here in the US don't know about it, but in the UK as well, had no idea what it was. So I always wanted to kind of get back there and like, in any way, kind of show people a little bit of this world. Because when you see it in person, it's like, absolutely insane, just cars, uh, 
fully demolition derby, like, but the crazy thing is the kids are like 10 years old. And so, and they're getting these hunks of metal and there's nothing in the car besides a steering wheel and like a stick shift and, um, and a seat. And yeah, they need to be like carried into the car by their fathers and like get the helmet on and the whole thing. And it's, it's just amazing to watch. And so for the short subject, I, I, I thought right away that um, it should be kind of like a, a day a day in the life of because what they do is like kind of so impressive and they're kind of very blase about the whole thing. Uh, yeah, when I got there, I just I the hardest part was finding the right subjects. So kids that a like were fine with me filming, but also like maybe were interesting for the camera because a lot of kids tend to, which I'm sure I did, uh, shy away like when you have a camera near them. And but these two were uh, Harley and Finn. They were just like such badasses and like best friends also. So like I thought the movie was able to play off of their relationship as well, like uh, to be a backdrop for the sport. So that's kind of interesting for both the documentaries. Neither of you actually started with the subject you started with the topic and then found the right people or the people willing or or the right people is that kind of would you guys say yeah, yeah. i was gonna ask Andres how, how you how they were comfortable enough to let you film that close to them and was it did that did that take a long time or was it just so many different relationships that that was the one thing i was most unsure about but it would be possible to follow people there because it's also a problem about identifying people especially the people who are fighting in the front line so-called i would say i basically just used a lot of time got to know people went to a lot of different protests i think there were actually like 1200 events during the period i was there with different protests all the time so i filmed a lot <laughs> no it worked out over time and some of the things we see in the movie just happened, like the opening sequence when they put the bank on fire. Uh, I was not invited uh, two days ahead for that. That happened <laughs> uh, during um, a long protest. They were running from the police and they actually realized that they had uh, some extra um, fluid they wanted to get rid of, uh, flammable fluid. And then they found out there was a bank quite close and then they decided to set it on fire uh, so that's how it happened which is a pretty strong opening scene like documentary or narrative so the fact that you captured this actually happening without having it planned is pretty crazy mm. okay chloe so tell us how did you come up with yours well um i love stories about breakups because uh, i think they're very relatable and there's something really horrible about them but also feel like very funny um because we can all kind of project our feelings and our relationships onto another person so that's always like something that i think i'm inspired by and then i was living in north carolina when i filmed it and i was wor working for this incredible production company and they are were so generous they like let me use their equipment whenever i wanted to make a project so i felt like you know, I, I definitely need to, you know, use these resources and I need to create something that c can actually be filmed on a lower budget. And so I wanted to tell a story with one setup, one actor, minimal action, no dialogue from my main actor. And the only dialogue comes from the cassette tapes. I just wanted to, yeah, make a very tight, simple narrative about a breakup. <laughs> 
Yeah, and lance in a neck brace is probably the most interesting, like, one setup kind of short film I've ever seen. Um, and that's kind of a good segue because I'd like to ask the narrative filmmakers about how you cast your actors and how you work with them. In some cases, you are one of your main actors. So, you know, for starting with you, Chloe, so you're an actress as well as a director. People can see you on The Walking Dead. So clearly you know how to do stuff. Um, good. <laughs> I'd love to hear different, you know, especially from you as well, Jesse, um, because you act in your own film, which is something I've seen in your previous work. Both of you come from a perspective of understanding the craft of acting. And so, Chloe, starting with you and yours, you know, you like you mentioned, you have your main actor, and the title is Lance in a Neck Brace, so I'm not giving too much away, but th- that there's a main character and he doesn't have a lot of mobility. And in fact, I think he doesn't even have any dialogue. No. He never speaks. He's in a neck brace. He's listening to instructional cassette tapes. But it's such a rich and, like, nuanced, absurdist view of, like, life, love. You find a lot about his relationship without him really ever saying anything. So does your, you know, how did you learn to direct actors? Does being an actor give you some kind of sense of how to tell someone to perform on that level? And I'd love to hear what Jesse thinks as well, because you guys have this sort of unusual, well, not unusual, but interesting perspective. So, Yes, I was really lucky in that when I I graduated from NYU and I, I moved back home to North Carolina for about two years and I met Lance who plays Lance, um, in my acting class. And so when I wrote it, I wrote it with him in mind because part of our acting class is it's like acting for camera. So we would record each other. And he's just so fascinating on camera and he has a very amazing – he's so expressive by doing nothing. And I so I wanted to write something for him. And I think it also helped that we were in the same acting class because I could – you know, I kind of knew like what to say to him and and vice versa – but he – yeah, he's incredibly talented, you know, actor. If I just go up to him and, and explain, like, you know, what I kind of would like, he can figure out how to get there on his own. One thing that we did work on, though, is um, I wanted him to to have, like, playlists of music available um, because he didn't have any dialogue. That meant that we could have a little bit of um, leniency with our production audio. So if he needed to get emotional – you know, fast. I was like, all right, like, let's get a playlist going. Lance's, you know, cry playlist, as it's been called. Yeah, I think like working together in class and doing scenes together and, and watching him perform really gave me an idea of how I can communicate with him and get him to, you know, the performances that I that I had in mind. And so Jesse, for you, you act in your in your film. It's um, economical. It's just cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> But you do an amazing job, and I've seen you do this before, and like you had mentioned about how you came up with the idea to make this film, and like in your description of the film, it's dark comedy, and I feel like so many films say dark comedy, but they're really really not. They're just comedy, but it's like slightly morbid or something. But in your film, you have like genuine darkness and genuine comedy, and a lot of it is is you being doing all this physical work as the actor. Really, for me, it all begins and ends with the script. I love every part of the process, but for me, it's really all in like, what's the story I'm trying to tell? I beat out like every beat for the actors. And like for this process, I'll really, I'll sit down, I'll write the script, then we'll get into prep. And then I'm like, okay, now I'm a director. And then I'll have the script on my iPad. And then I'll just start making all my notes for the actor. Like I'll give notes to myself and for the other actors. And then as far as working with other actors, you know, I found like, you know, 
it's like I get to be an ally. You know what I mean? It's like I kind of get to direct through also acting with them. And it helps because I am playing like a version. I mean, she's called Jesse. It's pretty lazy. But, um, you know, we can kind of get in there and like I, I'm just with them, you know, and I think a lot of times I can't imagine. It's so vulnerable to be an actor and put yourself out there. So if I'm like, hey, I'm doing this with you and like I'm here with my demons and we're totally in this together. Um, and then as far as like the process, it just depends on the actor. Like for Luca, who plays Christian, he really was, you know, it was like he kind of like gets it. Like he's the dude. He gets it. We had one meal. It was like he was like, are you going to be OK? Like and I was like, yeah, 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 like this isn't therapy. I have a therapist like, you know, let's do this. And then it was like we got to set and he just kind of got it. And you don't really want to fuck with that too much. You know, I'm like, do you want to talk about process? And here's my Spotify playlist. And he's like, whatever, bitch. Like, I got it. You know, um, I wrote on a, a TV show, worked on a TV show earlier this year, and it was all teenagers, a show scum for Facebook. And they're very much like playlist. Let's do Google Docs with poetry. Let's talk about everyone's backstory. What would the character eat for lunch? And so you kind of just have to feel out like what your actors need and be that for them. What I need is just permission to be really bad and like just be myself. And, um, you know, I think like everything, like I'm really, I don't like improv. I'm really into prep. Like I prep list, you know, prep, do a total shot list. I try to get, you know, I have my editor on set. Like I like to be really, really prepared. And then when it's time to act, I just turn into this like roly poly. I don't really know what happens, but (laughs) just try to be present. Once you're acting, do you go and watch each take? I'm just curious. Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, and it started on the skinny. Like we, I just didn't have time. And then I was like, oh, this is actually awesome because I don't want to see myself. And I have, you know, like I'll have one person usually on set, whether it's my editor or my scripty or my producer, who's like the you don't have it person who I really trust. And like, if I don't have it, we just keep going until we have it. And I, I have to let go at that point and just trust that – um you know, we have it. And I think I tried to, I had a little baby monitor for he's the one we shot it in one day. And I was like, let me see the frame. And I had the monitor and I was looking at the monitor trying to find my eyeline as the director. And I was like, oh, wait, I just need to like, let go, you know? Yeah. I'm curious. Can I ask a question? Yeah, please do. I'm super curious, especially working with kids and like, how do you guys Is it really like verite, like you're just capturing or will you be like, how do you feel right now? Like, how do you work with your subjects? Well, for me, it was fully um, verite. And and because honestly, at the beginning, when I tried to bring in a sound guy with a with a boom pole and the kids got embarrassed because there are other kids there, Mm -hmm. like other 11 year olds and 10 year olds. And so that had to go right away. So it turned the tone immediately was just like, stay out of their way. Like I'm trying to get the camera in front of their face as much as I can, but um, definitely I I was not directing them at all. I know you can do that in documentary a bit, but I was with these two. They were just like I loved seeing their relationship play out in front of me. I don't know if it changed for you. And Danny, what did you switch to when you decided not to do Boom? Did you have like oh wireless? I had um yeah it was just like I, I literally put an ad out on Craigslist in Birmingham for a sound guy, and he had. A boom and he also had a lav mic and so he labbed him up and the the sound in it is not like you know it gets crackly at times and there are but i think that's part of the charm in it because half of it is you can hear roaring engines the whole time so the fact that the sound wasn't perfect i think was okay in the end 
and uh but yeah we went for like lav mics yeah as much as possible that's so funny that they were embarrassed about a boom and not a camera well because I, well, I think what happened was like yeah. with the well the boom is so awkward it's right, right, huge right, right. and it's like and i think they were just like yeah i mean when you're 10 years old you don't want to like stand out from the other 10 year olds i guess for people that watch the film and i'll link it because i know it's up on vimeo when yeah. we post this the 10 year old the kids they're fairly like I don't want to say showboaters, but like you can tell there's a performative aspect. Like a lot of kids who don't shy away from the camera, then it's kind of like playing for the camera, not in a disingenuous way at all, but in a way that you can tell they kind of enjoy, you know, showing who they are to the camera. So it's kind of. Yeah, yeah. And especially there's two of them. Um, the one Finley is like, he's so funny because he's looking at the camera like quite a lot while he's talking. And I'm like, at the beginning, I was like, oh, this is an issue because like I'm trying to do a thing where he's. We're like, I'm catching them just like, you know, like hopefully fly on the wall in a sense. But it ended up being quite funny to me because he was just like, he was like very conscious of the camera, but also like trying to be a bit cool. But he's 10 years old and like a little British boy. (laughs) And like, he's such a legend because he's like jumping in these cars and driving it, whatever. Um, But yeah, so, and the other one, Harley is also, he's like, if there's a bit of a dynamic between the two where he's kind of like the more confident one i think he's three months older or something so he's like the the badass of the two yeah so i it was just kind of like i don't know let them do their thing honestly at the end of the day the hardest part was finding two kids who i thought would be interesting because and not meaning that all these kids aren't but a lot of them don't want like a lot of them you know this showboating thing you're talking about was actually i think a plus for it because they were happy to like be on camera at the end of the day just no boom Yeah, Anders, and I mean, you know, going back to Jesse's question about, um, you know, do you direct people at all? Do you ask them questions? And you're in the in the film, you hear different people, different protesters talking about, you know, what why they're there and what's happening. So how much of that is, you know, do you try to ask them stuff or what what is your strategy? I wanted to be in the protests. Uh, The interviews I did outside didn't have the energy, the same energy at all, and I had this idea of trying to recreate the atmosphere from the streets for people who were not there. So I wanted to film as close as possible and I ended up just going for process. I was filming things as they were happening, often very confusing because it wasn't necessarily a plan. Uh, So I would ask questions uh, along the way. Sometimes, <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> uh, other times, <laughs> more. I, I would ask them questions about why the protests, what is the political aim of this, uh, how does it affect them. So I was definitely doing interviews as well, but it was always in some sort of protest. And I think hopefully you can see that in the movie as well, because it's it's a lot of movement. We were moving all the time. And people were, I felt very honest, but also sometimes very scared or full of adrenaline. So it was, it was quite tense for a very, very long time. <laughs> yeah. And like, what is your relationship um, filming in the sense, like with the authorities in, in Hong Kong? And a big part of the film is seeing all the protesters and then all the heavily militarized police force come out. And then they're like, watch out, they have slingshots. But then meanwhile, the uh, authorities have complete, you know, battle gear on. And like, so how does that work for you as a filmmaker? Do you have some sort of protection as an international filmmaker to document? Do you have to navigate that as you go? Or what your, how does your safety fit into your filmmaking? 
it's a good question and it, it's difficult to answer because in some sense we were able to move freely but we were, I was also pushed a lot by the police and they were getting more and more frustrated I think they felt that they were in a very unfair position taking the blame for all the mess and also this continued lasted for much longer than I think people thought in the beginning and it was getting more and more intense more and more violent and a lot of people got injured uh, on all sides and so we would definitely get pushed and harassed uh, sometimes verbally sometimes they would run into you on purpose trying to knock you on the ground uh, I got hit in the face and <laughs> and hit uh, several times with different kind of like tear gas canisters like direct hits and rubber bullets and that sort of thing but I, I was lucky I didn't didn't hit my face except one <laughs> one time I was my nose maybe got broken it's, it's still not <laughs> maybe <laughs> oh, no, no, it, it's really strange it's still not clear it has it's definitely been broken one time uh, but we are not sure if it happened then or or two times <laughs> so I, I had to go to the hospital wait, at that point where were you like I want to go home yeah I, I look terrible so like friends told me <laughs> what is this on your face so I went to the hospital after some days and the first doctor told me it, it, it was broken and he agreed that it didn't look good and then I went to an actual, actual expert and we film, filmed inside the nose and everything had x-rays uh, so we we agreed that it was definitely like badly hit and swollen and it has been broken at one point but maybe it didn't happen then or maybe it like got broken twice it, it's not that interesting sorry but it, 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 <laughs> obviously you, you would get injured look if, if you see like, the movie prepare to have your nose broken yeah, in this uh, scenario yeah, to could, follow these kind of stories quite likely it could happen in that do you have production insurance Yes, yes. And I also, uh, I, maybe I can talk a little bit more about my background. I uh, worked a lot in conflicts. I only covered conflicts for 12 or 13 years. Mm. And I've been uh, in Iraq and Syria. I lived in Afghanistan for six years. So I'm used to working in uh, places with uh, actual warfare going on. Uh, with bombing and live ammunition and and in that sense Hong Kong was very very different uh, but I also worked in Egypt in 2011 and 2013 and 2013 was the biggest massacre in modern times in uh, protest when the government uh, attacked the Muslim Brotherhood and killed around a thousand people uh, when I was there there you could actually see them shooting people in the face and in the heart. The, the conflict in Hong Kong is very different, but it's also very dangerous. I'm surprised that not more people have been uh, killed, but a lot of people have been injured and a lot of people don't go to the official hospitals because of, they are afraid what could ha happen if the government will put them into the registers and everything. So it's, it's, it's violent and very messy. So in the case of, you know, filming in Hong Kong, did you have a crew with you? Um, you know, and how does your how do you capture footage in this environment based, you know, which I'm sure is accumulation of having learned all these different things in conflict zones? Um, I did all the filming myself. Uh, I had a lot of help uh, from the um, 
production manager who followed um, Telegram all the time, uh, the app. Uh, there's a lot of messages in Cantonese, and she was constantly following um, the development on the um, uh, on her mobile and directing me in the city. Because you wouldn't know a lot of the time, you wouldn't know what would happen, but you would know, you would see on Telegram that something started in this and this area, and then I would try to move around. So it was very, very long days moving around. Uh, other days I would follow specific persons, some of the persons you see in the documentary. Uh, but now it was a very s small team, I would say, and I I started filming alone. I, I thought for me it worked in a way, the, the way I filmed. Uh, and uh, it would have been also difficult to split it with another photographer at some point because I felt that I'd sort of found uh, the solution for this movie. You know, I, I'd like to ask Erica because um, about your film, I know you also have a background in documentary. And Little Chief, is that your first foray into doing narrative? Yeah, I come from a documentary background and I've always wanted to do narrative. And I've been eyeing one of the Sundance labs for a really long time. And so I kind of just used that as a, like, you're going to do this, you're going to write something, and you're going to have this date to push yourself to do it. I didn't really think I would get it. <laughs> so that was kind of a surprise where they were like, you got it. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm actually going to make this film now. But the lab process was really amazing to, you know, come to Sundance and have, like, the support of them through the lab. And to have some really amazing mentors and to take the script and workshop it for five days in Santa Fe um, with a bunch of just incredible filmmakers was amazing. And it gave me a lot of confidence. Like I've been working in this industry for a really long time, like from advertising to, pu to publishing to digital videos. So I know how kind of cutthroat it can be. And this was the opposite of that. Like being a part of the lab was almost like feeling like you're coddled <laughs> in a way. And Bird Running Water through the Indigenous Lab just does such a fantastic job. And I um, I felt really safe and kind of like what you were saying earlier about being able to be bad. Like there was this freedom through the lab process to make mistakes. And so it really challenged me to push myself to places that I might not have done if I had just been on my own because I knew someone was going to be like, ur, 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 come back over here, you know, if you if you, you know, go the wrong direction. But the documentary background, like I really love realism. And so a lot of the reviews about my film is like, it almost feels like a documentary. And I'm like, oh, I guess maybe <laughs> maybe I just, this is the kind of like um, style of film that I like. But um, yeah, I, it was, but also the story was so personal to me and was so personal to like my community. Like the children in the classroom scenes are all members of the Seneca Cuga Nation. So it really wasn't a, like that actually helped in a lot of ways because I could cast all indigenous actors from my community. And I was so used to working with documentary subjects that I let the chaos go a little bit because I'm so used to working in chaos with doc films that I was like, you know, my production manager's like, don't we need like to, and I'm like, it's fine. Like, we'll just edit this, you know, the scenes with them. It's better to get them naturally in their element. Um, and I felt comfortable in knowing that I could edit with that kind of footage. So yeah, also, and it was also just so great to be shooting on the Seneca Cuga Nation with members of my community. And like, you know, these kids 
had never seen a camera before that was large like that. And to have the ability to be on like a set and have like crafty and like, it was just a really, really amazing experience for all of us to get to share together. And we have our world premiere uh, here at Sundance, but I was able to take the film back to my community and screen it for them and like their family and their parents and everything. So it was just so cool because they got to kind of like walk a red carpet and like sit and like native representation is already so difficult to find representation of yourself. But for these kids, they actually got to sit there and eat popcorn and like watch themselves, like actually physically (laughs) themselves on the screen. And so, you know, my niece is in in the classroom scene and... um, just all these kids that I see at like ceremony, you know, to get to work with them. So it was, it was really a great experience. Has your mom seen it? She has. And my mom is like a very, like, um, like she's a very specific kind of like native auntie. And she, she's very much like the character Sharon. My mom's name is Sharon. So I guess maybe I'm lazy as well. (laughs) Um, She holds the compliments back and she's not the kind of person that's going to give you lots of hugs, but she really loves you and like supports you. And so I've done a lot of like stuff, you know, working on Super Bowl commercials or like whatever that most people are like, oh, you met Adriana Lima, the supermodel. But she just doesn't care like about any of that. So like this is the first time where she's really like, good job, Erica. Like you did a really good job. I was like, you mean all these years, like all I need to do is like make a film about you for me to like finally get accepted but yeah she she she's really excited and she doesn't get on airplanes so she wasn't able to come here and and enjoy the Sundance experience but she's very proud you know it's funny that you said that people have been reviewing your film saying it's like documentary it seems like a documentary I mean visually it doesn't seem like a documentary I mean but I do think those details are so like sort of like richly woven in that maybe that's why. Do you think did your documentary background like help you come up and create a world that is so detailed? Not that it's like super realistic though, because I don't mean to say that either. It's like there's lots of humor in your film in subtle ways. You know, I just think that where I grew up and where I come from is just so interesting. And a lot of people, when they ask about like, you know, coming from like a trust, coming from trust land or like growing up in this like, like a lot of people don't even realize that Native Americans are even alive or that they exist in any way, shape or form. And I think that I really just wanted to make a film that was so full of all these rich details. I think also I was afraid of not being any good as a filmmaker. (laughs) And so I really did like follow the adage to just write what you know and like to make what you know. And I very much know every one of those characters and all of those small details. And I wanted to make a film for Native Americans. Like that was my goal. I wanted to make a film that had a lot of nuances and a lot of things in it that only an indigenous person would really understand. Like it starts out at a casino. And you get asked every time someone finds out that you're na- like native, they're like, oh, do you have a casino? Because people have this like idea that we're like getting paychecks like from these casinos. But I opened the film with this woman going into this casino and stealing soap and paper towels and trash bags to take to her school because her school is so underfunded. And the reality is, is that those casinos are sucking resources from the people who live in that community. And she is not a bad person, but she realized she basically justifies stealing these things from the casino because of what it does to her community. And so all those little tiny details, I just really wanted to include because I wanted 
people from my community to get to watch a film that they really understood. And maybe not everybody understands all those small details, but that they don't have to really. You know, Danny, you have experience doing narrative. Would you say your narrative work has influenced your documentary or, you know, you know, did you find yourself in the inverse way saying, oh, I don't know, can I make a documentary if you had just made a narrative? I don't know. How does that work for you? I think it um, definitely played no part in it whatsoever <laughs> in terms of the fact that I had just worked with like, even though it was a kind of a small crew, but it was still like 20, you know, 20, 25 people. And, and I, I, you know, I loved everyone on set and it was great, but it was also a nightmare for pe- for me because I don't, lit- I don't, I would rather, there's just a lot of worries I think that come with narratives that um, you don't have if you're filming something by yourself or you don't mind kind of working all day or killing yourself or whatever. I've always had interest in documentary, like way before narrative anyway. So I think for me, this was kind of something I was going to do anyway. Almost the opposite. I think what I learned from this last project will help me in uh, whatever narrative I end up doing next. This podcast is sponsored by Rode Microphones, the Australian pro audio powerhouse, making incredible gear for podcasters, vloggers, filmmakers, and musicians. Rode is at the vanguard of innovation for audio solutions for podcasters, offering groundbreaking products like the Rodecaster Pro, the world's first fully integrated podcast production studio, and PodMic, the ultimate podcasting microphone. Find out more about how Rode can help you cut through the noise at rode.com forward slash podcasting. That's R-O-D-E dot com forward slash podcasting. This podcast was also sponsored by Small HD, real-time confidence for creatives. Founded by a group of independent filmmakers, Small HD has been innovating the on-camera and production monitor industry for an entire decade. It started by creating the first ever HD monitor that could sit on top of a DSLR. Today, it has products like the 703 Bolt, which has an integrated wireless receiver and a daylight viewable screen. Small HD is in the business of providing real-time confidence for creatives. With an extremely wide range of field monitors, Small HD prides itself on durability and usability. Whether it's paired with a mirrorless camera during a wedding or used for a video village in Hollywood, Small HD has a monitor for every production. Powerful software tools, a unified user experience, and premium display quality help make Small HD monitors the industry standard. Stop wondering if you've nailed the shot. Start having more confidence at the camera with Small HD. On camera and production monitors starting at just $299. For more information about Small HD products, go to www.smallhd.com. So interesting for people listening because it's like, well, what does it take to make a short? A short that gets into Sundance. Um, you know, one of the most competitive things to possibly get into. And so in terms of like your production and you know, what camera you use, like how big was your crew? I know Jesse mentioned, I think that they filmed in a day. Um, you know, I'd love to see what you guys, you know, what was your production like? I actually wanted to shoot on film at first, but I was, it's very, that's it's very difficult to do on documentary. And especially when I'm by myself and especially just cause like everything was super hectic and it wasn't a big crew. So I had this whole genius idea to get this camera called like a digital Bolex which is like a big sensor. I wouldn't tell anyone I was using it and then color it later and it would look like film. And I get the, I'm like in London for a bit and I like shipped it to myself and blah, blah, blah and didn't come obviously. And then 
got stopped. Anyway, long story short, I get the camera finally. It's been oh, it's been forever. I learn how to use it. I go out there, and then the first time I'm shooting, I get like the first 30 minutes, which is actually the very beginning of the short. And then it freezes, like completely freezes on me. So then I take out my like little tiny Sony uh, handy cam uh, camcorder, and that's what the rest is shot on. And so uh, there's GoPro in there. And so I have this whole like cool thing I brought, and I like thought I was like the man, and like I was not the man. It froze like instantly. And um, and then we put GoPros in the car for those shots. Um, because they wouldn't, they wouldn't let you put anything bigger in just for safety. Because uh, the yeah, if someone hits, when they hit the cars from behind, they like tend to flatten, and so if there's any sort of thing in there, it makes sense. They become don't, like shrapnel yeah, towards the drivers. Exactly. So why did you want to shoot on film? Because it's funny because you didn't, but I still somehow thought maybe you did because it had a feel of the documentaries I've seen that were shot on film, and maybe that's why I thought '80s, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't a dated thing. Like, so what was that? Well, the, my um. DP Chris Ripley, who shot um, my narrative really well on 16, he colored this for me. And the thing with the this uh, digital Bolex thing um, was that it, it gives you just a lot of room to do stuff. And so I thought he did quite a good job at the beginning of making it look like film. Um, my whole plan to like fool everyone. But um, from then on, I think it just kind of like the world is really gritty and Northern England looks just like so monotone. And so like you're just seeing like the only colors you're getting are like um, sparks and stuff from cars. So I think that that honestly was like the biggest part of the um, unique look. But um, but yeah, I mean, I wanted to shoot on film because I just I, I I think it's a bit of a cheat code. I think it looks very good, and but it was a little bit too hard to do for this one. Well, Anders, let's get your take since you're the other one with a documentary. So, what about your setup in your situation? What were you shooting with? I used a Canon 1DX Mark II, which is a DSLR, which is actually mostly used to take still pictures <laughs> of nature and sports you, you can also film and i really like the camera it's very robust um and i it has never let me down <laughs> uh, and i knew it would be a very difficult period with a lot of movement and it's also a lot of pepper spray and tear ga gas and water and a lot of stuff flying through the air also firebombs which sometimes don't uh, catch fire but they still will be, you will have this liquid on, on the camera uh, but this camera is is very uh, it could seemingly take anything and i was very happy with it and i like the texture i like how it looks i like how i can move around easily with it it's quite light uh, because it's very long days that would be holding the camera, so it was it was a physical challenge because it lasted for such a long time. But uh, this camera was easy to work with, and I will do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so Chloe, you know, let's hear from you about um, you know what your production was like. You know, because we talked with Danny about his digital bollocks. I felt like your film had a very specific aesthetic too, and maybe part of that is because there's like cassette tapes going in cassette recorder. Um, which lent itself to a certain like look. But can you tell us about what your production was like and what you guys shot on? Yes, we shot on a – my DP is going to kill me if I get it wrong. But I think it, we shot on a Red Dragon. Um, it was either Red Dragon or Red Epic, but it was definitely a red. 
Um, and I, I, I like the look of reds a lot. I just also wanted to use what my DP and his crew were most comfortable with using. Um, and we shot for about two days in North Carolina, about two hours away from my home. And I live like very close to an amazing film school, uh, the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And I went there for high school for drama. So I had built a relationship with that school. And so the majority of my crew were um, either graduates or students at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, And it was so much fun in there. Incredible. So yeah, that's, they made the movie. (laughs) Okay, Erica, how about you? And you know, one thing I didn't mention before is that your lead actress, you know, she's in Billions. Like, this is a very accomplished actress. So what was your guys' production like? Was it difficult to, you know, um, have her work with, like, otherwise non-actors, and the, the youth, the children in your classroom? Like, what was your production like in that sense? Yeah, well, casting was kind of like a dream for me, even though I went into it really being scared of it. Coming from a doc background, it was one of the things I was most concerned about was was directing actors. Because unlike these two lovely ladies, I do not get on the other side of the camera, have no idea what it's like to be on the other side of the camera. And I've loved Lily Gladstone for years, and um, I'm a huge Kelly Reichart fan. And um, I fell in love with Lily and her performance in Certain Women, and I wrote the piece with her in mind just because she's such a fantastic actress. When we got through the lab and then I got assigned um, my supervising producer mentor, Sterling Harjo, he's like, okay, well, what about casting? And I was like, well, Lily Gladstone will never do this movie. And he's like, oh, I'll text her right now. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, my gosh. And so we sent her the script and... You know, she's at that point in her career where she's not really doing short films, but she read the script and she loved it. And she personally reached back out to me and she's like, I will do this film whenever you make the film. Please let me know. I'll be there. And so I was just like, oh, my goodness. So I kind of just with her on set, she's just such a professional that I just could trust her and lean into her a bit. And just kind of see how she was working with the other actors and Bear, who um, Julian Ballantyne, who I cast as the young boy, you know, I saw her working with him and then kind of took her lead and, and worked with him in the same way. And she's just so fantastic. And I I hope I can one day make a feature film so that she can star in it and we can spend like a whole month together. Um, but we shot it over four days. Um, we had a four day uh, shoot and we shot on a red dragon. And I'm glad that we, we, we could have done it in three, but I had cushioned for a fourth because I just, this whole time I've just been terrified. I mean, I'm terrified right now doing this interview because it's just, it's like, you know, the whole process is just like so new and it's, this is really hard work. Like it's a lot of work to do what we do and it seems glamorous, but it's actually really hard work and it's really hard to make something good. Like there's, it's, it's, it's just a gift to, to have the access to do it. We had this whole big plan to shoot a bunch of stuff on a rig um, a tr- a, I, we used my, my dad's truck stars in the film as well. It's like really a homegrown affair. Um, and so I had, you know, a rig f- to shoot a bunch of driving stuff of them in the truck. But when she picks him up on the way to school, but no one told me that I should probably have my dad's shocks changed in the truck. And so basically we lost a whole day of shooting because none of that. Sh- so it was we had- too bumpy. It was too bumpy, and so everything was just so shaky, and so we lost all of this stuff. 
And thank goodness you watch dailies at the end. And so we had to re-block and reshoot all of those scenes, but stationary. And so it was always meant to have a little bit more movement than it does now. But it ended up being such a beautiful scene with them um, on the roadside with the car not moving that it was fine. So it's like sometimes you can't use the boom mic. Some, there's always going to be something that happens that throws you completely off course, but you just have to trust your instincts. And, you know, you have these grand production ideas in mind. I'm going to shoot a, a red dragon. We're going to have a car rig and it's going to be all this moving stuff. And that's not what happened. Um, But you just salvage it and you do what you can. So that makes me wonder if you guys could comment on speaking about how difficult it is to do this work psychologically, physically, financially, in some cases. uh, You know, where does this short film that you have, where does this fit into your like career at the moment? Like, why did you make this short? Obviously, it's in Sundance. So that's amazing. But like, you know, creatively, you know, where does this short film fit into your career? I think that um, probably, I mean, I don't know if anyone here has made a feature, um, but like I, for me, I feel like a challenging thing is convincing people to give me a lot of money to make a feature when I've never made one. And so my objective with this short film in my career was to was to show people that I can tell a story, I can make you feel for someone with little to no money and no setups, um, not no setups, minimal setups. And so that was my main objective is to, you know, kind of show people like, this is what I did for this amount of money. Like, you know, I can please give me more. <laughs> but just that I could like work, tell a story within certain financial constraints and hopefully make people feel something. Yeah, I agree with that. I think at this point you're trying to like, probably all of us think we can make features and it's difficult to do because... <laughs> I don't know, maybe not. Um, But it's difficult to do because of the money. And um, if you have an idea that you think you can do for a much lower budget and show off some of your skills, um, I think that's very worth doing. And I think, uh, yeah, that's why I did um, the short doc I did because I thought I saw a route to doing it with very little money and something I wanted to see happen. And yeah, and then you can kind of use it hopefully as a calling card to be like, this is... Um, that you know that first off you can deal with um, however small the budget may be you can deal with that and that you can get like results out of it. Jesse that same question for you because you've done you know a series um, you know how does this short fit in for you? Um, Yeah I think the first level for me is definitely like proof of concept for a feature really proving the tone here's the characters here's the world here are the deep you know main questions thematically that I want to ask and expand on Um, and I I think the other level of it which we've all experienced on some level and you were talking about just all the challenges and how hard it is I think it's like movies well the movies I make so badly want to be bad they're so hard to get made Everyone says no. So when you have something that starts to pick up and you start to get the yeses and you DM the actor on Instagram that you love, that's your dream actor, and he's like, let's do it. And your DP shows up and he's like, I got it. The steady cam guy from Yellowstone is going to come out and do it. And like the, your dream house, ha- you know, the guy that owns the dream house is the same name as your lead actor. You know, just all of these little things that are to me, just like the magic of movie making. And you're like, oh, this movie wants to be made. Like this movie wants to be in the fucking world. And then you make the movie and it's like, what I'm experiencing now is like, my heart has broken open. I'm a completely different person. I went through the experience of making this movie, of finding vulnerability and compassion for this character. And and it, I'm a different person. So 
yeah, it's awesome to be here, but it's also kind of like that's already kind of happened. Like now I get to just celebrate, and it, but it's like it's my baby's out in the world. So kind of like when you get a yes – you know, run with that yes after all the no's. Oh my God. Run with a fucking, run with a fucking yes. And like, I feel like people like, they just see the Instagram highlights. They're like, oh my God, Jesse, you're so busy. You're always doing a million things. I'm like, I get rejected all fucking day. And like, also I just think financially, like we all have job, we all have to make money. So it's like, go where the money is. Like for me, it's been in television development. I have not gotten a pilot made. I've sold four pilots. It's I'm not complaining. It's great, but it's emotionally exhausting. And I personally got to the point where I was like, I'm going to use this money that I have and fucking shoot something because I'm a director and I can't wait for somebody to give that to me. I have to keep taking it. So I think just that balance, you know. For me, the money was the substitute teaching gig. I should probably go back to that. <laughs> I mean, we need to see a documentary about you being a substitute teacher. <laughs> oh, God. It'd be like a psychological uh Disturbia <laughs> of children overpowering me mentally. <laughs> and so, Erica, how about you? How does how does this factor in for you in your career? It's such a weird journey because I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. I've always wanted to be a narrative filmmaker. I had a VHS recorder when I was a kid, which is totally aging me. But I ran around filming my friends and lots of trampoline routines, <laughs> and I really wanted to do this but then you know you go to school and then you go out in the real world and I you know this me too movement thing I know is like such a hashtag but it really is a thing like being a female filmmaker it's a real thing and like you really don't understand it until you're trying to get a film made or you're trying to do this thing and you see all of these other people these dudes that you've kind of come up with that are subpar that are somehow racing ahead of you and you really don't understand how it's happening so for me documentary filmmaking was really a substitute for narrative because i just needed to get a camera and find a story you know it was accessible because nobody was showing up for me and being like, oh, you can use this camera or here's $10,000 to make your short film. Like, even though I had the ideas and I was eager to do it, that those things weren't just arriving. Just like you said, no one's showing up and being like, Erica, you're a director. We're going to make you a director. So all these years later, it's just like, I was just like, I've got to just do it or I'm never going to do it. And so for me, Little Chief is just like the start of this what I hope to be a career in narrative filmmaking. And I want to make a feature and I want to push the boundaries of indigenous filmmaking. I'm currently studying my indigenous language and I'm in a three-year-long immersion program. And I want to make films in Gayakono, in Cayuga. And no one's going to show up with a budget for a foreign language film in an indigenous language. So I realize that these challenges aren't just going to go away. But what really matters is that I made a film about my community and it's great that Sundance has put their stamp of approval on it but it mattered as soon as it was made mm -hmm. and so for me I just want to have access to the resources to keep making things that matter to me and matter to my community and hopefully Little Chief will be enough of a of a momentum to get in the door to get those meetings and to hopefully get the resources that I've kind of just been longing for for so long. <laughs> And I will say, like, it's amazing you got into the lab. Like, no one gets in the fucking labs. So – but, like, I feel like use the deadlines. Like, I will – I always used to apply to the labs and, like, okay, I'm going to have my script done. Like, you can still use the deadlines because then at the end you're like, oh, fuck, I have a first draft. 
Like, and that, I feel like the first draft is the hardest, like, and that empowers you to just be like, there is no, there is no feeling that is greater than having like your movie made. It's like, we're all just like high. Like, I know we're all tired, but it's just like, we all have fucking movies. You know what I mean? And like, whatever it took us to get here, I think we can all agree. It's like, it's so worth it. Like, I am so fucking single, okay? (laughs) And it's worth it. Like, I made my movie. And, like, it's so much better than not making your movie. You know, maybe the last thing I'll ask, and this is kind of what you guys are already getting into, is just for somebody on the other side of this precipice listening and like, oh, this is so cool. I wish to become a filmmaker but hasn't actually been able to do it yet. Like, what's the one piece of advice that you would give them? I'm not sure if I can give an advice without uh, sounding like a cliche but I, I think I, my problem was that I waited too long I I was writing for a very long time uh, I wrote books and I wrote articles and I, I was sort of I didn't have the confidence to go into filmmaking and I I wished I start, uh, started earlier I never studied filmmaking so I thought well, I was it was very funny when I was invited to the no film school uh, podcast but uh now i just just started it, it's very simple I, uh, i've done it for uh, for a few years now and it's so much easier now and it's quite cheap and you can start uh, with a small project and you just trust your uh, own ideas and have the confidence i think that was what i was lacking in the beginning i also feel like um with short films is sometimes I felt like I was waiting for permission to say I want to make this. And then one thing that I learned is just kind of look at it like a moving train. Like it's happening and like people can get on your train or not. But just decide like you don't need to wait for permission. If you just decide like this will get made and the train is moving, I think it's better to visualize making your own projects that way as opposed to waiting for someone to say, okay, you can make this now. Like I made a Kickstarter. I didn't make my goal. Everyone's money was returned to them. But yeah, but I was like, I was like, the train is moving. I was like, the train has left the station. Like it will get made. So like if it's not going to get made through Kickstarter, then I'm just going to go back to those people and be like, hey, I'm sorry, but like I, the train is moving. So I think that's like the most helpful thing is to just be like, it's happening. At the end of the day, it's going to get made. Like, I would say in terms of, I mean, I didn't grow up, like, with Instagram. Like, it was more just, like, we weren't also like, broadcasting and, like, what's the thing and what's the thing, the new thing and whatever. And I feel like just be really, like, inside out. Like, make your stuff from the inside out. Like, what's interesting to you and what what is, like, the thing that is, like, so gross and embarrassing about you? Like, that's probably what your movie should be about. I definitely don't have any good advice, but for me, it was probably uh, confidence. It's like tough to get going and like it's very easy to keep rewriting a script or not going out and shooting something because like it can always get better. But at a certain point early on, I think that if you are very passionate about it, you should just do it, which is also very cliche to say. But like it's just just I think I've never learned more than when I did my narrative short and just everything went wrong off the bat and um yeah and it ended up going well but it was just like i've never learned more from that and i think um even if you're a shy person or not confident like you just kind of have to like bite the bullet and go for it i think oftentimes the films that don't get funded or don't get a lot of support are the ones that have stories that are the most important to be told 
And I think that a lot of times in this industry, people will give you resources because it's something that they've seen succeed before. But then we just get in this feedback loop of just seeing the same things over and over and again, over and again. So, I mean, it's not a piece of advice, but just like if you have a story to tell that you haven't seen before, then it's like make it like it's it's just that like she said, that train is moving and you have go out and make it make it on your phone like you know you just heard a story where this you know he had a really expensive camera but then ended up using something that you wouldn't you wouldn't choose to use if you're trying to get into Sundance but his film is here at Sundance and so like use the resources that you have to make the stories that you find the most important to you because probably those are the stories that we all need to be watching Thank you guys so much for talking with us today and sharing all of this like humorous and very real wisdom and congratulations on all your films. And for people listening, really, um, you know, check the article out associated with this podcast so you can see either clips or full versions of these films, because these are all amazing short films that will remind you it's possible and show you what short films can do. And now that you know how they made it, you can be inspired. So thank you guys so much for sitting down with us. Thank you. This is Oakley Anderson Moore. Thanks for listening to the No Film School podcast. Check out nofilmschool.com for the written companion to this conversation, as well as a remarkable rabbit hole of filmmaking resources. You can follow me on Instagram at Oakley Louise. And if you liked this conversation, we have a slew of really cool podcasts coming out next, including a roundtable discussion with shorts filmmakers in the Midnight Program. So don't forget, subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast platform. 